Sorry, so should, should, should we start the show? I mean, did we not start already? Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll cut all that out. Um, so, uh, so, so, Michelle, um, welcome to the show. Um, I apologize for being late. Uh, I'm used to I'm used to dealing with Ben, who's always later than me, and I forgot I was dealing with you. And you, despite being not in your office, despite someone else uh, failing to do introductions, despite you having to find a room, despite you having to find your headphones, you actually are are more on time um, uh, than than Ben is usually. <laughs> It's an amazing, amazing <laughs> situation because I certainly had to do all of those things. Yes. Um, so, uh, so welcome to the show. Uh, you've been a guest before, right? I have back on episode eleven. So that Ooh, was a long, wow. long time ago. Wow. Well, yeah. you know our motto is every hundred episodes or so we'll invite you on. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so anyway. So, do you? Um, for those who haven't been listening since episode eleven, would you? Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, or would you like me to uh, ask you questions and gradually like draw you out uh, so that you can, uh, you know, be revealed as who you are to the audience? Well, it certainly is up to you. I did just introduce myself this morning about five minutes ago to a classroom full of. Um, growers of fresh fruits and vegetables, but all I said there was I'm Michelle Daniluk, an associate professor and extension specialist at the University of Florida. So if you want more than that, you might have to draw it out of me because that's my pretty standard introduction. Oh, all right. Well, so uh, so let's, let's start at the very beginning, okay? Where were you born? <laughs> <laughs> That, that is the very beginning. I uh, was born in a small city called Red Deer in Alberta, Canada. And are there actual literal red deer in the city? I, you know, I, ha- I did not see one. I would, sus- I would suspect <laughs> at some news. point there were. Fake news. Fake news. No, I would suspect at some point there were. I don't remember seeing one, but I did leave there at the age of five. So it could just be that at that young age, I was unsure what a red deer was. Yeah. Okay. And then, all right. So, so you, 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 you spent the first five formative years in red deer, not seeing any red deer, um, uh, which I got, I've got to imagine that that, that caused some trauma. I mean, it might be deeply buried, but <laughs> I've got to imagine that that caused some trauma. Um, uh, and so after you, uh, after you turned five or during your fifth year, what, uh, what, where did you go after that? During my fifth year, we moved to uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, uh, where I was lucky enough to live during the glory years of the Edmonton Oilers when Wayne Gretzky was there. When I saw it every year when you cheered for a hockey team, they won the Stanley Cup. Um, that's a dig specifically at Ben because his <laughs> hockey team has never won the Stanley Cup. But when I was growing up, we won every year when I lived in Edmonton. And I lived there until I was nine. See, so so in a town called Red Deer, never seeing Red Deer, moved to another town. You thought that your team always won the hockey every year. See, this is explaining so much about you, Michelle. It, it is. <laughs> it's, it's all of all of the best things about me. And then I moved to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, uh, just after they hosted the Olympics in 1988, and spent uh, the rest of my time until I went away to university there. When I went back to Edmonton, and they didn't win any Stanley Cups. So. so- so, uh, so, so, so Red Deer, Edmonton, Alberta, and then back to Edmonton. So, so tell, tell the, tell the listeners about your, um, your time at university, as you say in Canada. 
as we say in Canada. Yeah, so I went to the University of Alberta um, in Edmonton for my undergraduate degree, and I started out as a biochemistry major, and this is probably really interesting to everybody who's listening here, and I hated biochemistry, but I chose it because I was good at biology and chemistry in high school. Uh, In my second year of university, because we don't have sophomores and juniors and freshmen there, we have first, second, third, and fourth years, um, I took a class of microbiology and decided to switch to a microbiology major. And in my uh, third year, the second semester of my third year, I took a class called Foodborne Pathogens, taught by Mike Stiles, who some of the listeners of the podcast may know, uh, that convinced me that I wanted to go on and do a graduate degree uh, in food safety. Um, The next year after that, I took Introduction to Food Microbiology, so a little bit of the wrong order, with Lynn McMullen, who is still up there at the University of Alberta as a professor. Hmm. Very good. And and so, and then, and then, uh, so you graduated. And what was your what was your degree from University of Alberta? What was that, that degree in then? It was a Bachelor of Science in uh, Biology with a specialization in microbiology. Okay, but you at that point you had already uh, taken a class with Lynn McMullen, and so there was some at that point. Uh, it it sounds like you were at least a little bit tuned into food microbiology. Yeah, so in the um, first semester of my fourth year, or my senior year, as you would say here, I uh, thought I had taken two classes at that point. I was in my second class in food microbiology, and uh, Mike Stiles, who um, was at the University of Alberta at that point as well, spoke to him and said, you know, I think I like this, and I think I want to go on to graduate school in this, and could you suggest somewhere for me to go or someone for me to work with to get a graduate degree? And uh, he um, suggested Mike Doyle at the University of Georgia. Mike Doyle was a master's student when Mike Stiles was a postdoc uh, at the University of Wisconsin. So I went down to Georgia and did my master's degree with Mike Doyle uh, after that. Um, and then some great years in Griffin, Georgia, as you as you are familiar with the great years in Griffin, Georgia, because um, you were there yourself. Not not at, not at the same time. We should we should let the no. record show. Not at the same time. Not at the same time. Very true. Uh, and then um, when I was looking at schools to go on and do my PhD, of I got an offer from UC Davis, and nobody says no to moving to California. Mm. So then I ended up at UC Davis for my PhD, which might be confusing to some people who thought that I did my PhD with you. Well, see, I was going to get to that because uh, you oh, are okay. uh, you are my most uh, my most well known and famous graduate student, and yet and yet here you've listed all of these people uh, that you've worked for, um, and I'm not on that list. You're, you're not, <laughs> although although it's a it's a wide misconception. Um, because I did really spend a, almost a month, I think, in your lab during my PhD. <laughs> right. So really, you are probably my most famous podcasting um, PhD advisor. There you, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. What, what, what you may not know is that almost as frequently as you're mistaken for my PhD advisor, Trevor Seslow is also mistaken for my PhD advisor. Oh, um, well, it's a good thing that Linda does not uh, listen to the podcast. <laughs> Yes, it's a good thing that Linda, my actual PhD advisor, is not a not a big listener. So, although she apparently she she does she downloads uh, as we've ex- explained on this show, but and she occasionally apparently listens. But uh, she's pretty I'm, busy these days, being being a, um, a, a a department chair and all that. She she is yes, um, she certainly is. Um, I might. I don't know if you can hear the dinging in the background. I, I can. 
that is my email that I just shut down. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and I, I'm just going to warn you, I'm on Skype very, very rarely. I suspect at least one of my aunts is going to try to call me when I'm on this call with you. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so we you should... Uh... So you, you should, and the listeners all know. Yeah, we yeah. should just bring her onto the call and ask and quiz her about food safety. <laughs> that'll we that'll teach her to call you. She uh, probably washes her chicken and her ribs um, and all her meat. Um, oh, in the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she, most of them can their own vegetables, too, including tomatoes that they don't pH adjust. So, you know, great family. Oh, dear. Well, you know, what does not kill you makes you stronger. That's right. So, uh, so yeah, so I want to, so again, I want to say thank you, um, for, for coming on today. I was scheduled to record, uh, at this time, um, with Ben and he was called away, uh, to a special meeting in Washington, DC. Um, I think, I think they're going to basically put him in charge of food safety for everything. Um, he didn't say that, but I, I suspect, I mean, what other reason, you know, would he be called away on such short notice to Washington DC and, and to, to break our date to do a podcast. So like I said, I've got, I've got to imagine it's something really important. <laughs> that, uh, that scares me a little bit. Been in charge, been in charge of all the food safety. Well, you know, as long as he has a good team of people, I'm sure he'll be fine. Yes. True. Um, so yeah, so so uh, the way the way this usually works is that um, I uh, I do a lot of prep work uh, over the weeks, and then Ben does a little bit of last minute prep, and then we figure out something to talk about. But obviously, um, that's not going to work this week. Now, I I can I can share with you uh, the stuff that's in the uh, in the Skype Dropbox, but that's was stuff more that I was putting in that I knew that I would want to talk. I would want to talk to uh, to Ben about. I don't know if you can you can hear that. You can probably can you hear my uh, email in the background? I cannot. No. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, what I've learned is that um, although you can't hear my email in the background, I think it does get recorded at least with this new this new version of Skype. And so um, I did get some listener feedback on the last episode that um, that they were constantly thought that while they were listening to the episode, they thought. They were constantly getting email. So I have just shut down my email. Um, uh, my aunt will not be calling in <laughs> during the podcast, but, uh, but, uh, uh, so that, that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't have, uh, we shouldn't have that, uh, that to distract us. Um, but what I wanted to know what, and so, and of course, you know, Ben and I have figured out like the things that are of mutual interest to us. We have some overlapping interests in, and you and I have overlapping food safety interests as well, but they're a little bit different. And so, um, what, when you when you think about food safety, the and, and of course I'm calling you away from a uh, produce safety alliance training, as you mentioned at the beginning of the call. Um, that is uh, that is a big part of what your food safety focus is 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 I think is doing these uh, PSA trainings and, and also doing research in in produce. But let's let's talk for a minute, if it's okay with you, about how you think it's going in terms of. Uh, the Produce Safety Alliance and uh, training uh, the the produce industry to be in compliance with the the new rules. So, what's your what's your sense for how that's going? Okay, well, that's a pretty interesting question. And yeah, as you mentioned, I am here um, today, not in my main office or research center, doing a Produce Safety Alliance grower training. I was trying to count last night 
um, how many of these we've done. And I think we're somewhere close to 25 grower trainings here uh, in the state of Florida. And so we've been doing them for just over a year. Um, and, and what I can say is how I think they're going is they've evolved, certainly, um, over over the past year. And for for folks who are involved in produce safety, we got a final rule back in 2015, the end of 2015, um, but it is still evolving. And I don't think rule um, changes happen as often or, or typically happen the way they're happening here uh, with the produce safety uh, rule. So um, there actually are sections of the rule that are still reserved where there's no... Um, you know, there's no information out there at all. And there are sections of the rule where FDA's thinking has, has evolved over the past 12 months since we started teaching the course. So I've been involved in the Produce Safety Alliance for a long time back from when they were originally uh, developing their curricula. And I ben, I know Ben was involved. Were you involved at all with PSA during curricula development, Don? No, I was not. Okay. And have you ever sat through the full day grower training? I am Michelle. I am ashamed to admit that I have um, I have not sat through grower training. Um, I thought I was going to have a chance to sit through foreign supplier verification training, but that didn't work out. I have not even sat through the preventive controls training, although although I do hold enormous power in my hands because I evaluate people to see whether they're qualified to be lead instructors for uh, for for, for uh, uh, preventive controls. But no, I uh, um, I uh, I have been to HACCP. Um, I've been I've been to Better Process Control School, <laughs> but I never. I, my, so basically, my uh, my level of food safety training is like solid, like mid nineties. <laughs> cool. Well, this course is better. In fact, all of the courses you mentioned are better than Better Process Control School, um, although not in any way as as um, eloquent as HACCP. And I can't tell you what kind of um, confidence it gives me in the in the Food Safety Preventive Controls Alliance to know that you and Ben, who are neither of you lead instructors nor regularly teaching the course, yield such extreme power in it. Um, it gives me great um, great knowledge to know that I can text you my problems and you will deal with them within the organization um, because you're not teaching the courses yourself. So you've got me at the beginning of actually what's a crazy week and a half on my schedule. We're doing a grower training today uh, in a city called Why Mama in Florida. We're why, doing Why Mama? Why? Why Why Mama? Exactly. Uh, we're doing a grower training tomorrow in a city called Tavares in Florida, uh, which is actually very close to one of my favorite cities in Florida. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week, we head down to another great named city in Florida called Immokalee to do a three-day um, preventive controls training. And then Monday and Tuesday of next week, we're on to another city called Belglade, Florida, to do a, a HACCP training, um, particularly targeted at fresh fruit and vegetable packers um, and fresh cut operations. So it's, it's the beginning of a crazy week. So you're right to assume that or to say that this has taken over a lot of what I'm doing lately, although I'm trying really hard to have it not be. I miss being in my, well, I miss being in my office and, and I miss being in my office, both the temporary office I'm in now since a hurricane and my real office. And I, I miss, um, I miss doing research and spending time writing research papers. A lot of my time right now is on the road doing these trainings. Um, but specifically about 
produce safety rule. It's going better than it was. Certainly, we have a great group of trainers here in Florida. Um, we've done a lot of trainings, and we sort of have it figured out. Uh, it's I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's not as much fun now as it was a year ago. When, when um, you were still figuring it out. When we were still figuring it out. And the reason, there, there's some reasons for that. A year ago, when we were still figuring it out, I used to be able to get the audience all riled up, um, pissed off at FDA, um, pissed off at the state of Florida. Um, and that, that really, I would get up there and that would be my goal. Um, because there were some things that were really not very good about the rule. And I needed to get enough um, motivation in the crowd to make calls to start changes being made. Uh, and so so a couple of those changes. First, um, you know, every state, and you may not know this, and the, the audience may not know this, every state Department of Agriculture was given the ability to apply for what they call a CAP grant, um, which I forget what CAP stands for uh, in the in the NASDA system, but they were each given the opportunity to apply for money to, for the state to either do what they called Competition A or Competition B. And Competition A uh, has to do with with the states actually being contracted from FDA to be on the ones doing the farms for the produce safety rule. And competition B was to get money to help with grower training and outreach um, to all the farmers. And so in the first round of applications, Florida decided to only be a competition B um, state, which meant that they got money for to help us offset our costs with these PSA grower trainings, uh, to help do some other one-on-one -on -one trainings called on-farm readiness reviews that actually haven't started yet with growers, but they did not choose to opt in in year one to competition A, which was to be that regulatory authority. So unlike a lot of states, uh, and I think New Jersey was one of them that opted into competition A from day one, where they said, we're going to be the state that's on the farm doing these inspections. Florida didn't say that in year one. And so for the first year of this project, or at least the first seven months of this project or this training, I got to go out to growers. And when they said, well, who actually is going to be on my farm doing these trainings? I got to say to them, well, that's a great question. Right now it's going to be FDA because the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services has opted out. And if you would rather have FDACs on your farm than FDA, and I think everybody wanted to mm -hmm. have FDACs on their farm and not FDA, I would encourage them to call the commissioner of agriculture in the state of Florida. Um, you know, call FDAX, call the Commissioner of Agriculture, get your commodity groups to, to, to make that comment, to let them know that you would rather have FDAX do that uh, than the state of Florida. Uh, and so in year two, FDAX did opt in. Um, so now FDAX will be the folks on the farms, but I no longer get to, you know, send them, give them the Commissioner of Agriculture's phone number and say, hey, give this man a call. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that, you know, and so there's, there's a couple of good, good points there. And I have to say too, that I, uh, I, I, and part of the reason why I have not been involved in grower training so much is I have a couple of wonderful people in my state, uh, Wes Klein and Meredith Melendez, uh, both of whom, you know, um, who are basically county agricultural agents and they handle, uh, essentially all of the food safety training that needs to happen for, for farmers. And I have to say thanks to Wesk, and, and, and no, I'm not slighting Meredith here, it's just that, that at the time uh, Meredith was not on the faculty yet, but, it, but um, when, when this whole food safety thing, even before 
preventive controls, right, uh, and and the and FISMA, uh, when this whole food safety thing was starting to affect uh, New Jersey agriculture, Wes Klein uh, put his hand up to get involved and really was instrumental in uh, getting New Jersey Department of Agriculture involved in basically helping to uh, help uh, uh, growers get on board with food safety and, and through a variety of different programs. And so it's not surprising that New Jersey took a different option there at the beginning um, uh, from Florida. And, and it, it's really all due to, to Wes's, Wes's excellent work. Um, but I want, I want to come back and talk uh, a little bit more about this whole idea that the rules are not set, that they're, they're in a state of play. And this is, and this is something that it, I take it for granted now, being where I am in my career, but I think back to when I was a, a graduate student or an undergraduate student, um, and I, I thought of these uh, rules and regulations as being made by people that were very distant from me, and I thought of these rules and regulations as being very, like they've always been there, and they'll, they'll always be there, and they're, they're set in stone. And then, and then what I witnessed in the 90s was uh, seafood HACCP, well, meat and poultry HACCP first, and then seafood HACCP and juice HACCP, and now FISMA. And I realized that these, these rules come along from time to time. They're written by increasingly by people that I know, and that they can also be influenced by the regulated industry and that people should speak up. And, and it was, you know, and it, I'm, I'm sure it was fun for you to rile up, rile up the bases, they say these days, rile up the farmers and, and to get them to call uh, the, the commissioner of agriculture to, to make those changes. And it's really, um, I don't know, it's been, it's been very, and then, and then of course, as Ben and I talk about a lot on the podcast, the whole conference for food protection and the way that that works to, to help FDA write the model food code. It, it's been, it's been really interesting to, to me to see how my thinking has evolved over time in terms of how regulations are written, how they, why they get written the way that they do, and then also what we can do to, uh, to fix them. And, and, and so again, let's bring it back to uh, fresh produce. The one area where I was uh, most involved recently, which was absolutely fascinating, was an opportunity that I had to go uh, to California um, and to uh, to Southern California and and do a bunch a bunch of actually it was a bunch of different trips that were that were combined. But the 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 part that I want to talk about is a meeting with uh, where FDA was present. Um, it wasn't uh, FDA didn't call the meeting, but they they sent people, and it was some academic types like myself and uh, like your your former advisor uh, Trevor Suslow, <laughs> um, to and sitting around the table uh, with with uh, uh, I think there were some not growers but representatives of growers, and really talking about the specific problems with the water rule, right? And and water testing and FDA in its uh, infinite wisdom had decided on specific way uh, that water. Water, agricultural water need to be tested, and in fact, it turns out that that was essentially unworkable uh, for a variety of, of practical reasons. That it just was this was this was this. Although FDA was well intentioned in doing this, it turned out to not be uh, not be the the best way forward. And and they were again they were noncommittal as they have to be in these meetings, but they listened very carefully and and they were asked some very pointed questions. And so so obviously, can I, can oh, I, yeah, go I, ahead. 
Can I just cut in there? Yeah, Absolutely. water is, I, I often, I often, and by often, I mean almost always give the pre-harvest water talk, which is module 5.1 of the grower training. And that was the other point where I get to get the farmers riled up um, because like you said, there was a water testing method in the original or in the version, in the published version of the rule that required a specific method called 1603 water testing, um, which in the state of Florida, only five labs performed. The southernmost uh, lab performing those tests is in the city of Orlando. So there were no labs south of Orlando. And there's a lot of Florida and a lot of farms south of Orlando. And my favorite part of that rule was that it required the water test to be from the farm to the water testing lab within a six-hour time period, uh, which was impossible for growers uh, in South Florida because there just were no labs. And I, I will let you go back to finishing your story before before I, I sort of give the conclusion of this. But I used to when we used to teach the course down in in South Florida, south of uh, Miami, to that our sort of large fruit and vegetable growing region in in Miami Dade County. Um, I used to get the growers all riled up that they actually couldn't do this water test to meet the requirements. And one of them stood up in the middle of the class and, and walked out and called Marco Rubio on his cell phone. So, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I used to get, I would, and at that point I wasn't telling them to call, you know, their, the state commissioner of agriculture. I was like, you got to call the senators, you got to call your congressman. And this man literally walked out and called Rubio. So it was great, but I'll let you finish your meeting with FDA oh, uh, out in California. N- no, no, I, w- I was, I was almost finished. The only thing I will oh. add to that, to that whole story is that one of the the responses as well. Um, if there aren't enough labs to do 1603, um, maybe this will spur people to create businesses. And then somebody made the point that they had actually investigated the economics. And yes, it might it might spur people to create businesses, but those businesses would would not be profitable because, in fact, it was impossible to run a business in in a state, uh, especially a state not like not like New Jersey or Florida, but a state that might be sparsely populated that didn't have a lab that could currently do the 1603 method, um, um, and, and, and in fact, no sane person would ever develop a business to do that because, in fact, there was no, there was not enough money in it. And and the, so and again, so the story in this case does have a happy ending. Um, I googled. Uh, FDA 1603 water, and I find I find a very nice uh, PDF uh, that's uh, on the FDA website that basically shows equivalent testing methodology for agricultural water, and it and it includes certainly it includes 1603, which you are uh, free to use, but it also includes a variety of other uh, test methods as well, and so uh, so it's good. I mean, I think you know people love to bash FDA for for making uh, bad decisions, but but I think that it's important to realize that they're staffed by uh, smart, hard working people who do the best that they can and they uh, don't always get it right and and they want to get it right and so there is a, and there's a process for doing that and uh, and then eventually I think uh, if you're patient um, <laughs> and and you maybe have Senator Rubio on speed dial um, you can uh, you can affect change so yeah so that was uh, that was my that was my water story but no you chimed in uh, perfectly yeah, and that and that um, you know, in addition to that document that they released, where they went from just 1603 to eight other methods that were equivalent to 1603, including most methods that growers had previously been using, was a great was something they did really right. Um, they also uh, extended the compliance dates for water. I don't know if you saw that, but they originally had given anyone everyone two years beyond the implementation 
implementation date of the rule. So the first implementation date is um, January of this year. So the first implementation date for water was 2020, but they have expanded it out from two years to that four-year point so that really nobody has to be in compliance with this water section of the rule until 2022, which gives everybody a lot of time to figure it out because it's still the, probably the most complicated part of the rule they've put forward so far. So. Yeah, yeah, and especially especially depending upon where uh, where you get your water, and I think a lot of people, especially a lot of people that are not in, uh, maybe they're in food safety, but they're not in agricultural food safety, or maybe they're they're just sort of you know generally aware, like they don't you know they just like they know that the food comes from the supermarket and they just don't want to get sick from it, um, but they don't they don't realize um, that this uh, that that actually agricultural water may be a potential source of foodborne pathogens, but it's not so simple uh, as in your house where you just turn on a tap and, and you expect to have clean uh, chlorinated water coming out. That that doesn't always happen um, uh, out uh, in in the hinterlands, in, in farms, and especially, again, depending upon what the the water um, uh, geology is in your state, whether it's surface water or whether it's well water, uh, et cetera, and it, and it can it turns out it can be uh, it can be rather problematic to to get uh, water that meets uh, let's say it, it certainly could be problematic to get water that meets a, a drinking water standard. And right now, um, f- for uh, for fresh produce, it has to meet the bathing water standard, which even even that may be uh, challenging in in some in some regions. Again, this is an opportunity for people to do research, but the, the most important thing is at least we now have methods that um, FDA has judged to be equivalent that, that, that growers uh, can actually use and, and will actually use. Yeah, and not, not only methods, but time to figure it time out. To, and and time to right. figure it out, exactly right, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, because there are, I mean, beyond beyond just the method that we talked about, which really is what I always use in a room full of growers to get them riled up, um, there, there certainly are questions uh, around those those standards that FDA has put in um, to to the rule uh, and it related to the number of tests you have to, or the number of samples you have to collect, the course of the time you take the samples over and actually what s- standards um, you have to meet with those waters. And you should really link to the paper that RA and I just had published in JFP this month. Um, if, if, if readers want a more in-depth view of that, um, you know, it's really easy to say to a farmer, you can't use that water because it doesn't meet the right water quality, um, except that when you go out a lot of times on these farms, like you said, there is no other water for them to use. And so it's either we use this water and we figure out a way to make it work and be safe, or we don't grow crops. And I, I you know, for me, I want to keep as much fresh fruit and vegetable production in the U.S. as we can. Yeah. So. Well, and and I mean, who's to say that that the water quality in places that are not the U.S., is any better, right? I mean, and, and maybe even is less less well regulated. So, yeah. So, Michelle, would that be evaluating the U.S. Food Safety Modernization Act Produce Safety Rule standard for microbiological quality of agricultural water for growing produce? That uh, that would be the paper with yes. Havilar as senior author and Daniluk as or Havilar as first author and Daniluk as a senior author. Or, correct, correct. That one. All right. Yeah. We will. Uh, we will. We will definitely. We will definitely link to that. I'm I'm finding it in. Uh, I'm not finding the the JFP link, but but we'll we I've got a I've got a link that will uh, that will will point people to. So that's good. Cool. Um, the if I can if I can go on about the other part of the rule that's still open. Because oh yeah. 
know. I love it. Even though I promised I was only going to talk to you for an hour. Did you only promise now. an hour? You know, these podcasts are an hour and a half, Michelle. I promised myself that. <laughs> I might not have promised you that because every time I listen, I think, oh my God, they're talking so much. Why well, is well, it so long? Well, <laughs> Well, we're we'll, we're we're going to circle back to that, but 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 uh, I'm going to make a note here. But go ahead. Yeah. So the other part of the rule that's still open that I think is really fascinating is a whole part that has to do with raw manure. That's subpart F of the rule, and it's just held as reserved right now. They don't have any data in it, so um, or any information in it pending a full-on risk assessment by FDA. Are you aware of this effort at all by them to do this manure risk assessment? I am. I am vaguely aware of it, um, and I have to say, and again, in another um, uh, stellar bit of uh, of, of uh, poor career planning, I, I actually set out to do a manure risk assessment a number of years ago, well before uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act was was published, or even a, a glimmer in in the president's eye. Um, and I um, uh, had people go and search the literature and got a ton of papers and then promptly didn't have the time or the resources to turn that into anything. So, so once again, I have, uh, have spectacularly missed the opportunity to upstage FDA. But I, I, am, I am vaguely aware that they are doing this, yes. Well, I um, based on the fact that I think I have two unpublished risk assessments with you right now that have been sitting on one of our desks for years, I'm not at all surprised by that from you. Um, it sounds like something I would do as well. Um, but one of the things I think FDA is doing really right on this risk assessment uh, is going out and finding starting concentration and prevalence data. And I think you know this, and I, I think most of the listeners should know or do know as well that to do a really good quantitative microbial risk assessment, you need good data and you need a good starting point. Uh, and so FDA is involved in a, in a pretty large project right now where they've contracted to the Western Center for Food Safety out at UC Davis with Michelle Jay. Um, and who subcontracted then uh, some funds to um, University of Arizona and University of Delaware and us here at the University of Florida to go out and do um, surveys to figure out how much salmonella and chigatoxin-producing E. coli are in these raw manures that might or that are being used as soil amendments. Um, and, and like you know, it's really easy to do a prevalence survey. It's really awful to do a prevalence and concentration survey because the MPNs are, are time-consuming, especially MPNs related to pathogen load are time-consuming. Um, but I, this project is ongoing. It's, I think, in its second or third year uh, and should be all finished by this spring um, where we are surveying cow manure uh, and chicken or, well, cattle and poultry litter throughout across the United States for concentration and prevalence of salmonella and STEC. And so I think they're doing a really good job getting the right sort of starting data um, to do this, to do the QMRA correctly. So I think it's really great. Yeah, and you know, and permit me to to, to opine about this for a minute. And I, I'm thinking about this because we went out to dinner um, with some some good friends last night, and uh, they didn't serve us manure, um, but they did serve us uh, raw milk cheese, and uh, it was a lovely cheese plate. It had two pasteurized cheeses and one raw milk cheese, and actually, and I'm also speaking of raw milk cheese, and I'll bring this back to manure in a minute. Um, uh, I'm working on a paper with a postdoc uh, in my lab um, who's who's from. Uh, Brazil, and she's in my lab to do uh, risk assessment. And actually, speaking of papers that I am publishing, uh, that paper, uh, I reviewed that paper over the weekend, and it got submitted. 
Um, and, and, and what it looks at is, um, uh, survival of listeria in, um, aging cheeses, which, which was why I asked the server when, the, when she brought the uh, cheese to our table and told us it was raw milk cheese. I said, so how long was it aged? And she's like, I don't know, but I'll ask the chef and I'll find out. Um, and it turns out it was from New York State. And the answer that she got back from the chef is that he thought it was at least a year, but um, they knew for a fact that it had been aged for 60 days. And that was exactly the right answer, right? Because I knew that the New York State requirement was 60 days. I also know that the longer that raw milk is aged, Aged, um, uh, the 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 lower the, the probability of finding pathogens in it, but but to bring this back to well, and so and so, I, re I remember hearing a talk from a colleague whose name I won't reveal, um, who, who did a literature search on survival of pathogens in raw milk cheese. And he published, or he, he talked, and I don't know if it was a publication, but, it was, but it, was a, it was a presentation. And he did a wonderful job of collecting the literature and reporting for all of these papers um, how long that bacteria survived in cheese. And, but what it occurred to me as this, this person talked longer and longer is it occurred to me that he was measuring, he was extracting from the paper the wrong thing. It's not a matter of how long uh, uh, do the microorganisms survive. It really is a matter of, and this comes back to your point about manure, what is the starting prevalence? What is the starting concentration? And then at some point later in the process, what is the ending prevalence and what is the ending concentration? And if you don't have a concentration, if, you, if you've gone to below the detection limit, at least tell me what the detection limit is, because what I need to do a risk assessment, be it for raw milk cheese or be it for manure, is I need to know a rate, right? I need to know the decline rate for the organism. And if, and if you give me a starting prevalence and concentration, you can somehow express the rate of decline, then I can calculate for a given volume of manure what the probability of finding um, uh, a viable cell in, in, that, in that mass is at the end of that. But it's not, and again, and, and we, we're, we're doing some research now on survival of bacteria on, on surfaces, and we see the same thing in the literature. People talk about, they report in the abstract, it survived for uh, 10 days, or it survived for 15 days, or it survived for 60 days. That's great, but you have to tell me the starting concentration, you have to tell me the detection limit. If you don't tell me those things, it does me absolutely no good for you to say that it survived for 10 days, or 15 days, or, or, or 30 days, or, or 90 days, because that information is meaningless without a starting and an ending concentration. So anyway, that's my rant on, on um, uh, survival of bacteria on things and in things. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm glad I could give you that soapbox to stand on, because um, I agree a hundred percent. And I think that so I mean we've talked you and I have talked before, and you and Ben have probably talked on the podcast before about how many of our colleagues in food safety maybe don't understand math as well as they can, or at least don't think about food safety problems um, in terms of in terms of math, or or can sort of see that that larger risk picture in terms of what their data they're presenting. So uh, I agree with you 100%. I think this is just another example of that. Folks, if you're going to do a survey, don't just do prevalence, do concentration as well. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, 
It's hard, but you have to do it. Well, and in fact, um, this reminds me of something that I, I put in the Dropbox. And I think I think I put it in the Dropbox after I knew that you were going to be on the podcast because it is definitely a Don and Michelle topic uh, and less a Don and Ben topic. And I don't know if you saw this, um, but it, I, I, uh, I'm not I'm not invited to your no, Dropbox. No, no, I know. I know. Um, but my, uh, my my point is that I don't know if you saw this article other than in the Dropbox, um, which is an article actually it's from it's a it's a it's a was published a month ago on the 538 blog and the article is entitled the supreme court is allergic to math have you seen this i'm sorry i was talking on mute no i have not i have not seen this but it sounds like something i would enjoy yeah um, so we will we will reading. link to it uh we will link to it in show notes i won't make you uh i won't make you read it right now because uh that's a pretty boring podcast but but basically um the 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 top the the lead of the article says uh, the supreme court does not compute or at least some of its members would rather not the justices the most powerful jurists in the land seem to have a reluctance even an allergy to taking math and statistics seriously and so um uh, i don't think we can do anything about um the the enumeracy of the supreme court but certainly we can do our very best to insist that our colleagues our food safety colleagues uh be numerate and um if if they know that they are enumerate, then uh, we can certainly suggest that they, they find colleagues that do understand math and that they at least get um, uh, get good enough to uh, get good enough to fake it. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting read. I would again, I would encourage people to take a look at it. Um, it came across my desk this uh, this weekend, um, but again, it's from the 538 blog from uh, from a month ago, and, and we, we will link to it. But this whole, I mean, we are facing so many issues today in our society, and food safety is only one, where you really do have to have an appreciation for, for these sorts of things if you want to be, I think, if you want to be able to make intelligent, intelligent decisions about them. So, um, Michelle, uh, I, I didn't realize that you only agreed to talk for an hour, um, but we've still got 15 minutes. Um, is there anything else um, that – so we've talked about a bunch of things with respect to the produce safety rule. We've talked about um, water. We've talked about manure. We've talked about training. Is there anything else that, um, that keeps you up at night or that, that kind of gets you riled up or that makes you want to rile up the base um, when it comes to the produce safety rule? Well, I, I, um, when I after you invited me, I think Friday evening, I sort of wrote a list of stuff I might want to talk to you about. Oh, awesome. Uh, Look at you being all prepared and stuff. Well, it's because I, I what the, the um, listeners of the pod might not know. Podcast. Do you still call the podcast. Do you st- do you still call them the listeners of the pod? Does Ben still no, call them that? Well, no. So what we've taken to doing, and and the listeners, and, and I'm I'm like kind of revealing the inside baseball here is what the listeners have taken to doing it is referring it to as the pod beat cast. So you you take a little pause there. You say pod cast, and then okay. and that's how we call it now. <laughs> Okay. Well, what they, they don't know is I asked you, I said, oh my God, is there anything homework that I was supposed to do? Or is there any like pop, you know, so, uh, media stuff that I'm supposed to know about for this? Because I don't have time to deal with it this weekend. Um, Cause I was too busy watching football, which we're not going to talk about because it was a terrible. <laughs> oh, oh, football. I know ter- which one that is. That's the one with the, the round, the ball that's not round with the pointy ends, right? That's right. That's right. But it was a terrible weekend for all my teams. So we're just not going to talk oh. about it. Go dogs. Um, they, they is that right? Win. Oh, okay. they, that is right. Okay. Well, there should be more of a W in that. Dogs. dogs. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, one, I did write a list of things I wanted to talk about. And one of them sort of, um, that gets, it doesn't necessarily get me riled up or make me want to rile the base up, but it's one I've been thinking a lot about lately is, and, and it's a question I want to ask for you, um, and, and you've had no prior warning of this. Um, and I suspect we're going to talk more than, than an hour at this point, and I'm okay with that. Uh, I've, I've made peace with it uh, during, the, during the previous 40 minutes of this call. Um, it has to do with sustainability. And, and I, have you noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed as much as I, I have noticed, that food safety and sustainability keep being lumped together as sort of one uh, topic area. And I'm curious in your opinion of why you think that's happening, why food safety and sustainability are being linked together. And of course, I think about it very much as because of what I do from a, a growing farming point of view. But I'm, I'm as I sort of develop thoughts on it, I start thinking about it from a food processing point of view uh, and even all the way through to retail as well. But why you think those two things are linked together and how you think moving forward sustainability and this, this movement towards sustainability uh, is going to play a role uh, in decisions we have to make in food safety. Wow, that's a really good question, and it's not one that I've thought about. And so my, I got, I got a couple of reactions. And so, one reason why they're lumped together is it just sounds good, right? Safety and sustainability—they both start with S. They, they alliterate, um, and so it just sort of rolls off the tongue. Um, so that's that's just my 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 first reaction. Um, second reaction is that they are both things that have been come to prominence in the public's eye more recently, perhaps. And so uh, maybe, I mean, I'm obviously I've spent my whole career in food safety, so it's not something that's new to me, whereas sustainability is, is more a new concept, but maybe to the average person, um, uh, food safety and food sustainability uh, or food safety and sustainability um, have sort of come about together. Um, I think that there, there is a little bit of interplay and trade-off between the two. And I, and I don't think about it so much in terms of sustainability, but one area that I've been thinking about and nominally working in a little bit is this whole idea of food waste. And, and so food waste relates to sustainability, but food waste may also have an interplay with food safety. In other words, if we, if we make an effort to waste less food, that may push us potentially towards consuming food that is more unsafe, like uh, cutting the mold off um, uh, before you eat a piece of moldy food, but you might not do a good job, and so you might have some aflatoxins in there. Or uh, taking foods uh, maybe past their marked uh, shelf life date. Now, I realize that shelf life, shelf life doesn't necessarily always relate to food safety, but there might be certain products where it does. So so, um, so that might be part of it. Um, uh, part of it, and again, this is related to the, the, the sort of food safety pushing one way and sustainability pushing the other way. Certainly, we use chemical sanitizers to help assure food safety, but we also know that uh, chlorine is not good for the environment, um, and so you know there's there's a there's a, a, a tension there. Uh, I think uh, not necessarily food safety related, but safety related. I think about my trip to uh, to to the WHO in Geneva one uh, winter, at where uh, the bus going up the hill to the WHO uh, couldn't make it up the hill uh, because uh, they don't salt uh, the roads or the sidewalks. 
rocks in Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, because it's bad for the environment. But unfortunately, uh, salt, while it might be bad for the environment, is good for making people not slip, and it's good for helping buses get up the hill. And so if you if you make those trade-offs um, by uh, not salting the roads and the sidewalks because it's, it's bad for the environment, the trade-off is that you might have people uh, hiking up the hill in the cold, um, which sounds inconvenient, but you might also have people who are frail, um, who slip and fall and break a hip or hit their head. And so there are uh, there are definitely uh, there are definitely trade-offs, um, and and it, it's kind of interesting too because food safety. Um, you can almost always point to an individual who is affected, whereas sustainability is the risk or the, the benefit is more diffuse. And and maybe another another good example of food safety versus sustainability might be an area where I have worked some and and have been talking to some folks recently about this, um, is uh, antibacterial hand soaps, right? Uh, they certainly, in my mind, they work great for food safety, um, but because of uh, ecological environmental risks, uh, they might not be good um, for the water supply, or they might not be good for uh, animals that live in the water that might contain those residuals, and so, so that's so that's my that's my quick uh, quick hot take on <laughs> food safety and sustainability. All the way from well, it's convenient, and they alliterate all the way through some of these interesting dynamics where they're they're sort of pushing in in countervailing directions. So I just I want to take a quick tangent on hand soap. <laughs> uh, have you sorry? And is it like my own issues? Have you mentioned on the podcast your study where you added water to hand soap and bacteria grew a lot? Well, it's that's a that, that's a good study. Uh, you've you've actually mischaracterized it a little bit, but but yes, uh, we have talked about. Uh, I refer to that as the bulk soap study, and we have talked about that. And in fact, that article was accepted for publication in the Journal of Food Protection. Um, it has not appeared online yet. They have not. Uh, set the sent the page proofs yet, but we have very much talked about that, and uh, yeah, and I've started um, in very. I'm act, actually, I'm going to be talking about it um, uh, later this week uh, at a, at a meeting that I'm going to. I'm going to be doing an overview of our research, and especially focusing on the recent stuff. And I'm definitely going to talk about the bulk soap uh, work, uh, which basically shows that these these bulk soap for those that aren't familiar with the work, these bulk soaps are uh, basically soaps that are dispensed in in open dispensers and so you 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 put uh, you pour soap in the top um, and then soap comes out the bottom and then sometimes if you want to save money you can add water and a little bit of soap now we didn't actually do that we just went out and surveyed uh, bulk soap samples but we suspect based on the solids content and the water activity of some of the products that were more egregious in terms of having high bacterial counts we suspect that that dilution is going on but but we didn't we did didn't actually, um, we didn't actually do that dilution. Although uh, I think some others may may have studied that. But uh, bottom line is, um, uh, I prefer to get my soaps from a contain a self-contained container. And again, that's this comes right back to this food safety and sustainability issue, right? Like that, those uh, contained soap dispensers, um, you that generates a lot of waste, right? And so because at the end of that uh, dispensing that container of soap, you have this plastic packaging material, you have the, the nozzle, and all of that goes into the trash, which goes into a landfill. Uh, bulk soaps are much more uh, friendly to the environment because you just simply reuse the same container, you just keep pouring fresh soap in. And um, But um, th those 
those dispensers can become colonized. And when they're colonized, uh, they have sometimes have very, very high uh, 10 to the 6th, 10 to the 7th bacteria per ml um, in the soap that gets dispensed. And, and that soap uh, doesn't just go down the drain with the, the, the bacteria. Don't just go down the drain with the soap. Some of them uh, may indeed transfer to your hands. So thank you. Thank you for providing me with an opportunity to, uh, to complain about bulk soaps. Well, it, um, it, it has, you, you're, you're telling me, and apparently I misunderstood. I thought you actually were able to show growth, um, in those. Oh, in they, those. no, they so, do. They, they grow, right? Like, we, okay. We, yeah. We, we, I mean, we, we assume that they grow. We went out and we sampled bulk soaps and we found 10 to the sixth, 10 to the seventh bacteria. And so I don't think they're being manufactured with those levels. I think that those dispensers are becoming colonized and those bacteria are growing. It's just that we didn't, we didn't actually prove growth. We just found very high concentrations that would be unexplainable for any other reason than growth. Well, so it's given me a complex now. I, uh, when I go to the bathroom, um, I recently was last week, we did one of these produce safety grower training workshops in Live Oak, which is almost up on the Georgia line. Uh, and, and when we drive up that way, we often stop to eat uh, at one of my favorite pizza restaurants called Blaze Pizza in Gainesville. Um, but there's Blaze Pizzas all across the country. Uh, and I had ordered my pizza. It was being fired. I went to the bathroom to wash my hands. And the soap was this like runny water mixed soap uh, that made me think of you and 10 to the 8 bacteria and now on the hands of every single person who had just um, made my pizza. So thank you. Um, nice, for, nice. For, was it... For, was it was it pink colored? Was the soap pink colored? It was remember? pink colored. Yes, yes. Yeah, and then nothing against pink uh, or pink colored soap, but uh, that does appear to be one of the rather cheap formulations. And and again, we did do it. We did do a color analysis, um, but I have to say that the results were not statistically significant. Um, but uh, but if you had to pick a color to avoid, um, not that I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not uh, bashing all pink soap, but but if you had to pick a color to avoid, I would pick uh, the pink. Yes. Yeah, so that's an interesting question of is it safer to just not wash your hands or safer to use a pink soap? Well, that's a really good question, and I guess it, it's it's complicated, Michelle, and it depends. Uh, it depends on uh, your assumptions about bacteria on your hands versus assumptions in the uh, in the soap dispenser. I'm I'm sure with enough money and enough time, I could do a risk assessment that I would never publish. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you could do. All right, I'm going to take us back to sustainability. Good, um, please do because because I yeah, like I said, it's something I, I've been thinking about. For a while, um, you what 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 the listeners of the pod may not know Cast. is that I podcast. Sorry, yep, I was uh, elected last year to be a member of ICMSF, which is the international. <laughs> I have to bring this up because I know it you make makes you so happy. International Commission on the Microbiological Specifications of Food, and most people don't know who that group is, other than they write books. And it was told to me actually that some people explain them as druids that live up in the hills that come down once a year and and talk about stuff and then go back in the hills. It's, it's, I don't want to call it a secret society, but it is quite, um, it's not very open. Um, and so I, I don't actually know if I'm allowed to talk about this at all, but I, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to talk, talk about it anyway. Talk about it anyway. Um, we are in the process of working on a, a new book and, and the new book has to do with how sort of mega trends in the world, um, will influence food safety sort of over the next 25 years. And, and one of these mega trends is, is sustainability and this push towards being more sustainable and, it, and how it might influence food safety and, and how um, companies or individuals or people who work or think about food safety might want to think about adapting 
to the the changes in these megatrends, uh, including sustainability. Um, and, and so for me, the biggest question or the question I always start with is how do we define sustainability? And, and can't, you know, every time it's kind of like risk assessment, right? There's a lot of different definitions of what that means. Um, so I struggle with that a lot. But as I teach this grower training course, uh, you know, one of the things we talk about is, um, is animal intrusion and the potential for wild animals to contaminate produce uh, in a growing environment. Uh, and there's this, this great couple of slides about something called co-management, which when we teach it here, we always say, oh, it's those Californians worried that they don't want you to, you know, kill all the wildlife. But certainly it's something that we all need to think about. Um, but I think, I think, I'm not sure why these two things get grouped together, but I think I'm curious to spend more time thinking about it. And if anybody listening has opinions on it that they would be wanting to share with me, you can email Don and Ben and then they can tell me or you, <laughs> or you can email me directly. I, it's, it's something I'm spending a lot of time thinking about. And as you know, as I think about it more and more, um, especially from a water point of view, both using poor quality water in a, on a fresh fruit and vegetable farm, if that's the only water that's available, how do we make that work in a safe way? You mentioned uh, chemical sanitizers and, and decreasing waste. Um, one of the one of the things that I think about is decreasing water use in that cleaning and sanitation step. Um, and I think a lot about water anyway. Uh, the pipes are eroding in my building, so I clean. A, think a lot about how much water we run around our eroding pipes right now in my building where I work when we use our pilot plant. But, I, you know, I have to sort of think as we move forward and there's this push to use less water, how that's going to influence the way we clean and sanitize produce packing, but also all food manufacturing facilities and what the impact is going to be on that. So I think moving forward, I, I feel like I'm going to have some more thoughts on this. I'm not sure what they are right now, um, but it certainly is an area I'm spending a lot of time thinking about. So I was glad to hear uh, some of your thoughts uh, in terms of they sound good together and, and they're just both things that were recently promoted are sort of in line with my thoughts on why the two of them are together. But go ahead. Good. Oh, good. Yeah. So I just wanted to say you mentioned megatrends, which made me think back to a uh, uh, best-selling uh, book uh, at, uh, th that uh, was entitled Megatrends, 10 New Directions Transforming Our Lives, which was a nationwide bestseller uh, back in 1988, uh, written by a guy, a guy by the name of John uh, Naisbitt. Um, and so we will link to that, um, to that book uh, because forever in my mind, uh, the, world megatrends, the word megatrends will be linked to that book and the lovely, swirly, colorful rainbow diagram on the front, on the front cover. Um, and then the other thing that I realized uh, when you were talking about wanting people to email you, I figured that if, if we wanted them to really be able to find you, we should probably link to your, your homepage. And Michelle, I am really I am really disappointed in you. If you go to your, your homepage, it looks like the last time that you had a paper uh, published was 2013. <laughs> wait, wait, which, which one of my homepages are you looking at? Oh, I, I'm looking at the first one that comes up when you type Michelle Daniluk, Florida on my computer, uh, which is um, uh, the UF Citrus Research and Education Center. Uh, yes. Uh, if you go down to the second one that comes up, University of Florida Institute of Agriculture and Consumer Sciences, maybe that one looks a bit better. Well, I don't it, has, know. it has less information on it. Uh, no, I think if you click on <laughs> oh, research, you have to click yeah. on, oh, okay. Oh, pu publications, uh, accepted February, 2016. So I'm only a year behind. I typically update them at the end of each calendar year. Okay. Um, it, they, you know, it's, I have too many affiliations to keep them all, 
updated. But yeah, that I didn't realize that other one came up first. I'll have to change that. Well, it comes up first on my, on my computer, but it's it a, came it's, up. It came up first here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, I I, uh, I just assume that you have people to take care of that for you, and that you're not editing these pages yourself. Uh, no, I uh, yeah, once a year. Once a year is all I can manage. <sighs> Uh, well, you know, what I figure is as long as you're actually publishing the papers, that's the hard part. Putting them on your website, that's pretty easy. Yeah. Well, I'll go with that. I am I now <laughs> have I've now have Googled and seen the mega trend swirl that you're talking about. I feel like I need to buy this book, especially since I can buy it for three dollars and seventy nine cents. I wonder if his mega trends are the same as my mega trends. I don't. I don't know. Um, uh, there are people who are reviewing this on Amazon who who have some very nice things to say. Even uh, yeah, the the top review in Amazon is uh, from February uh, 2014 is still right on after 30 years. So yeah, there. Did you know there's also a Wikipedia page on it? Excellent. Oh, excellent. We'll link to that as well. Um, so one of the reasons I asked you about that is I am. Um, heading to South Africa the first week of December to speak at the third international conference on global food security, which is amusing. And I have been given the talk title of how safe is my food? Um, Well, I would say that the the answer is between zero and one where, where one is uh, will definitely kill you and zero is completely safe. Um, And I would say it's complicated and it depends. Uh, That's, (laughs) That's, that's what that's, I figured you'd say. That's two slides right there. I mean, how, yeah, it's uh, that's a that's a that's a silly question. Um, yeah, it's, that's not even like how do you even dig into that? Like, how safe well, is my food? Well, it depends on which food you're talking about, and and who you are, right? So you, yeah, who you are exactly. You posted on Facebook um, uh, sometime in the last week uh, an article out of Slate magazine, no, The Atlantic, mm-hmm. called "How." Uh, trust shapes a nation's food safety rules. You remember you posted that? No, but I'll Google it. <laughs> <laughs> you could look for it on your Facebook wall. That's where I found it this I morning. Can ne- I can never find anything on Facebook that I post or that anybody else posts. It's terrible. Hmm. Well, you posted it on Facebook, and it talks all about how does a country decide what risks are acceptable in everyday life. Oh, I, I'm, uh, I'm sounding more familiar as you talk about it, yeah. Yeah, and it, it talks about bicycle rules in China versus the U.S., but it goes on to, to link that back to food safety. So I just wanted to say thank you for posting this article because it's given me um, some good thoughts on how I'm going to move forward with the talk to say not just it's complicated and it depends because they made me a keynote speaker for some unknown reason. Mm-hmm. So I have like 25 minutes to speak on how safe is my food. That's because you're my most famous graduate student. That's clearly That's a, why they made you a you keynote speaker. You're our most famous graduate student. Trevor's most famous graduate student. Probably not Linda's most favorite graduate student. Certainly not Mike Doyle's most famous graduate student. So. Certainly not. Certainly not. Yeah, I do remember this now. It's got a lovely graphic at the front of a Chinese, apparently Chinese lady uh, covering her face with a mask as she's riding her bicycle. Yeah, it's a it's a good one, right? I mean, and it and it show. I mean, this is and this is something that that we do talk about a lot on the podcast is the difference between risk assessment and risk management, right? And risk management says, well, how safe do you want it to be? And risk assessment says, well, how safe is it? Um, and 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 then uh, you figure out how to get to where you need to get to, but realizing uh, that there's no there's no such thing as absolute safety. And th- this is something, too, that I was thinking about this weekend uh, because I mentioned I was working on this uh, this milk paper for my colleagues. Um, 
Um, and they do, and they're talking about what the Brazilian uh, rules are in terms of um, uh, aging of milk. And it's interesting because they have requirements that the milk be aged for 60 days, but then they have producers that are definitely not following the rules. And so the question is, what do they do about that? And what they did about it is they issued some revised guidelines that say that you can age it for less than 60 days, but you have to have a scientific study that proves that what you're doing is safe. And that's all. That's all well and good, but but even in this paper written by my colleagues, who are very, some of them are very risk savvy, um, they say things like, um, "What do we need to do to assure safety and 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 you know make sure that there's no risk from these products?" And I had to kind of go in and tweak that language a little bit to take that out because that's again, it's 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 not it's not just because you detect the no bacteria or no pathogens in the food doesn't mean the risk is zero, right? It's all about probability and it's about rates of decline, et cetera, et cetera. All that complicated math stuff that people don't like to think it's about. It's not even that complicated. I mean, you can make it complicated, but the at the at on the face of it, if the, I mean, if I can understand it, it's not, it's not that hard, right? Yeah. I feel the same way. People can make it a lot more complicated than I can understand. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you for putting this. Um, oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. There because it was a good one. Good. On Facebook. Good. Well, and you know the the angry political ones. I was explaining to my the friend friend that we were eating the raw cheese with last night that the the angry political things. This is a special place on Facebook where I post those that uh, uh, that, that only people that are part of that that group can see. And then I try not to get too too angry or too political. But this one I thought was just really. It's just a nice uh, good background article that might be interesting to people that were not just food safety nerds, um, but but people that inter- are interested in risk. And so. Yeah, and and so and I want to say also uh, that I appreciate you taking the time, even though the, that you're very busy. Part of the reason why I I definitely wanted to try to record a podcast today was that uh, my travel schedule is crazy starting today. Ben's travel schedule is crazy apparently starting today, even though he didn't know it. Um, and that we, the two of us, are just gonna we're gonna be actually seeing each other both in Dubai, um, but not able to do a podcast there. And so uh, if we didn't get a if we didn't get something recorded today, it was going to be a while before there was an episode. And I know uh, at least some of the listeners, um, I mean, some listeners complain that we put it out too often and it's too long. Um, but other other listeners do like the long episodes and, and do like to have, I think everybody can agree that they want regular episodes of, of whatever, whatever length uh, seems suitable. Yeah, it might just be me that complains that it's too long. Me, me and Jack Kazayich. Me and Jack is age. Well, well, and Jack complains that there's too much stuff that he doesn't care about, I think. And and I, to be honest, I don't think Jack has ever complained about that. It's just that we like to pretend that he does. Okay. Okay. So uh, so what, uh, what, what good TV are you watching? I guess you're watching football. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I recently, I've been doing, well, it was Remembrance Day weekend in Canada, Veterans Day weekend here in the U.S. So this weekend when I couldn't watch football anymore because it was too awful, um, emotionally I was damaged by the football. So I turned on and I rewatched um, Ken Burns' The War, the night, the, the World War II. You know, he's done the recent Vietnam one, but I watched a bunch of World War II this weekend because growing up I felt like we always watched The War on Veterans Day weekend. But oh, okay. before that mm-hmm. – yeah, so I watched a bunch of World War II, um, which, you know, my mom is so funny because 
my dad makes us uh, growing up. We all watched World War II um, a lot, not just on Veterans Day weekend. And my mom says, we know who wins. Nothing changes. Stop watching. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not surprising. Um, but I, I recently binge watched um, all of The Handmaid's Tale. Did you watch that? No, I have. I but I, but I did. So I listened to. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't watch much. I don't get much. I, most of the way I get my news is from podcasts and. Uh, there's one that I listened to uh, called Trumpcast, which is guess what it's about. Um, uh, but they uh, they have a book club on there, and they recently in the book club they read The Handmaid's Tale, and I have not seen the television show. I have not read the book. I usually don't like to um, uh, do, listen to things like that because they're they're kind of spoilery. If I wanted to read the book, but I said you know screw it. I don't think I'm probably not going to watch the television show and I'm probably not going to read the book. So I will listen to it. And I, I was quite intrigued by, uh, and the book is uh, different than the, the television show, but, but I was intrigued by it. So yeah. So why don't you, why don't you tell folks uh, what you thought of it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think Kristen would really enjoy it too. I don't know how much you might enjoy it, but I think Kristen would really quite like it. I'm surprised you haven't read the book. Nope. You, you never read the book. So I, God, I read I read the book probably when I was in high school. I mean, we read a lot of Margaret Atwood growing up in Canada. I'm not sure if Ben did um, as well, but Margaret Atwood was assigned in a lot of my classes. And I think because she's a female Canadian author and, uh, okay. and quite, a, yep. quite a quite a famous one, we um, um, I felt like uh, oh, I just got a great reminder on my computer that I'm supposed to go to a. Uh, IFPTI conference call in 15 minutes that I don't think I want to go to. Um, <laughs> I hope they don't listen to the podcast. Um, um, we read, I read, I've read a lot of Margaret Atwood, I, The Handmaid's Tale, Orson Crake, uh, The Penelope. I mean, I've read a lot of Margaret Atwood um, simply, I think, because she's a Canadian author and I felt like I should. And I never really engaged in the books. I mean, I read them because I felt like I should read them. Um, but I never, when I read books, I read to escape what goes on in my brain all day, every day, right? Mm -hmm. I read for escapism mm -hmm. and I never got that from any of her books, right? When I pick up a book, I want to read it where I don't want to put it down. And I never felt bad putting down her book. And you're right. The TV show took the premise of her book, but very much applied it in a different way. And I, I made it through, I think there's eight or 10 episodes and I made them through them in two or three nights. I mean, it was that good that I kept watching and it's a very good, um, discussion, uh, you know, about society and, and, and certainly very poignant in some of the, with some of the questions being faced in the U S today. So I, I would recommend it. I, I really, to the reader, to people who maybe didn't love the book, give the TV show a chance. I'm really glad. I did. Hmm. So it was really good. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. The latest, the latest things that thing that we are binge watching is we got to the end of uh, the Doc Martin series, which I've talked about here before on the podcast. It's uh, it's a uh, set in um, the south west of England um, in a little port town, uh, fictional port town called Port Wen, and, and Martin Clunes plays a doctor, a surgeon, who basically has to give up his surgeon surgery practice because of uh, hemophobia, which is a fear of blood. Um, and and uh, he goes to live in this small little port town, and he becomes the GP. <clears throat> 
for the town and we just finished it and i think it's i think it's done or mostly done there might be one more series coming um and we just started again at the beginning and they're just i they just really appeal to our particular sense of humor which tends to skew towards more british things and he's just this very socially inept awkward person who's probably on the on the asperger spectrum and uh he just you know has this just gets dropped into this this port town and all these weird people and recurring characters and just all of their, and it's kind of sort of like, uh, you know, it's sort of like murder. She wrote, um, in that <laughs> every single week, uh, in this town, uh, there seem to be multiple medical emergencies that require him to run out to a farm to, you know, to, to, you know, pull a, a farmer's hand off of a pitchfork or, or some such thing. But anyway, it's quite, it's quite delightful. And, and we, we are enjoying rewatching that uh, very much. So, yeah, so not, not a lot of new television watching going on. And then of course there's figure skating. So that's takes up a lot of Kristen's time in terms of her television watching. You know, so two things. I recently looked at buying some new Doc Martens. I haven't owned Doc Martens <laughs> shoes. Yeah, I haven't owned Doc Martens shoes since like the 90s. Yeah, the 90s, I think, where I don't think any moved with me to the States. And I recently was online looking at thinking about if I wanted to buy some Doc Martens boots again. Uh, But I also have been thinking about Kristen and figure skating because I um, have purchased hockey tickets in a number of cities around the United States. Um, They now have my email address and send me all the time advertisements for things happening at their skating arenas. And I recently had uh, one sent to me from San Jose to go watch like U.S. Nationals or something. And I meant to forward it to Kristen, but I couldn't find her email address. It was tragic. Well, it's good because she doesn't actually check her email. So uh, best best thing to do is send it to me and then I will text it to her or, or, or tell her to check her email. But yeah, she's not a, she's not a, she's, she's one of these people that, that for she's, and and she's for the most part, which has been fascinating from a technology perspective, for the most part, she can, she survives just fine on Facebook text messaging and her iPad and her iPhone and, and rarely uses a laptop and, and rarely does email, um, uh, you know, so and that and that just really works well for her. I uh, I aspire um, <laughs> to be like that one day. Yeah, I uh, oh god, I just I just the email never ends. It's like uh, it's like rain; it just keeps coming. Yeah. Yeah. So I have one other thing that I sure. have on my list to talk sure. to you about, and it's about not food safety, Disney and Legionnaires disease. Did you see that? Oh, I saw this. I, th- this blew my mind. And we'll, we'll link to, to an article on this. This blew my mind because Disney has such a really aggressive food safety culture. Frank Giannis, who runs food safety for Walmart, um, uh, uh, did food safety at Disney, and then he moved to food safety, to safety generally at Disney. So he was in charge of everything, including safety on the rides and stuff. And this just really surprised me because Disney is so focused on these things that that it really surprised me that they weren't up to speed with modern methods for managing Legionnaire's disease. Are you there? Yeah, sorry, I was on mute again. Um, I'm not very good at managing that yet, sorry. Um, Those of you who listen to me speak in the IAFP webinar know that sometimes I speak on mute all the time because you didn't hear me speak for minutes after uh, I was supposed to start. Um, Yes, I agree with you. I was shocked. And, and, you know, Legionnaire's diseases, I walk through those misters all the time in Florida, right? They're at Disney, they're at Universal, they're at football games, they're at like everywhere you go where it's extended periods of time outside. I walk through those misters and if Disney can get it wrong, it scares me for every other mister I walk through 
everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think about this I think, again, because I'm a, a microbiologist. I think about this all the time. Anytime I walk through, a, I see a water feature in a hotel or in a mall. Um, I just, I just think, and, and, you know, and then there was, there was some concerns, uh, back in the day about produce misters, um, uh, uh potentially being colonized by, uh, Legionella. And so, uh, yeah, I, um, uh, I, I think about this all the time. I don't really know what to do about it other than hold my breath and walk the other way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this is, this is a surprise. And I, I'm, I would be very interested to hear like how, how this could, uh, how this could happen because it very, very atypical for Disney that usually does such a good job with this sort of thing. Yeah. I, I, you know, I haven't seen a lot of details or any real statements coming out of Disney so far. Yeah. Um, but I, I would be interested to see sort of how this, um, progresses as it moves forward. Cause again, it was another one that sort of took me by surprise. Yeah. And I've only read the, uh, the November 11th article from, uh, from the LA times. Um, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how it develops. Yeah, when I first uh, read that, it just said in Orange County, and I thought, oh, that's where Disney is in Florida, and then I realized it wasn't in Orange County in Florida, it's next to Orange County, so ah, okay. um, then I realized it wasn't here, and I felt better, but yeah, it um, it's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. The the other thing is something that Ben posted on Facebook. Did you see this one where it says experts say you should throw out your underwear every year for health reasons? <laughs> no, I did not see this. <laughs> yeah, I I'm not sure where the link is from, but um, it uh, it made me think about my own um, obsessive laundering habits mm. using separating my underwear from the rest of my clothes and washing it only on hot water with bleach. Um, so because I do not throw out my underwear on an annual basis. So yeah. So the the article uh, the article that I'm finding, which is again from November 11th, um, uh, it's from the uh, the Sun, uh, which is a UK uh, news company, and the headline says, "Bin your undies. Underwear needs to be binned after a year of use for hygiene reasons," say domestic gurus. Um, and uh, yeah, it's probably not a not a bad idea. Um, you know, some of the um, uh, some of the, oh, wow, this is like, I have a really nice chart about how often to throw away your pajamas, your dishcloths, your towels, your underwear, your sheets, your duvets, your tea towels. Um, yeah, I would, I want to go back and find the, uh, the original peer reviewed literature, but, um, yeah, this is, this is something that I've, I've thought about because, um, there is a, uh, believe it or not, um, podcasts are, uh, uh, an interesting testing ground for advertisements. And there are at least two underwear companies I know of that regularly advertise on podcasts that I listen to. And, uh, one of those, uh, and none of them advertise on this podcast, um, cause we don't have advertisers, but, <laughs> but, but, but you would, but if we could, yeah, to, yeah. I mean, if they wanted to. Um, but one of them um, actually advertises that they have silver nanoparticles in their underwear, which which help to control um, odors and germs. So, yeah, this is uh, I had not I had not seen this. So thank you, thank you for standing in for Ben and reporting uh, what he's posted on his Facebook page for uh, for us to see. Yeah, I just um, I just looked at that graphic. They thought I um, I do not wash my towels or my sheets after every third use. That's a lot of laundry that I'm not going to do in my life. 
Yeah, well, and that's I think that's kind of the standard in hotel rooms. Uh, if you go there and you and you if you if you don't if you follow the green option um, and you hang up your towels um, uh, and and you whatever you if you follow that then they'll they'll do that every three days, which is which is which is you know probably reasonable for a hotel, um, but but I can understand how that would be uh, overwhelming to uh, you know to to someone uh, as busy as yourself. I am. Um... My cleaning lady has offered to do laundry for me, so maybe I'll take her up on that. But she does not visit my house every three days. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm going to just say I hope the hotels launder them between each guest, not well, after three no, days. No, 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 my, no, 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 no. What I, what I, I should have corrected that to say that, that, of course, always between each guest. But then if a guest is there for more than uh, three days, they will, uh, they will wait the three days if you choose the eco option, I think. Yes, I, I yes, I I knew what you meant, but that's not what you said, and it uh, <laughs> called you out anyway. Thank, thank thank you for pointing that out, Michelle. I appreciate uh, that. My pleasure. My pleasure. I have nothing more on my list, so. Well, thank you. It's I again, as I was saying before, um, I I thought it would be really important to not miss this opportunity to put out a podcast, and I said to myself. Who could I who could I uh, send a text message to that I knew would be responsive and would be a good guest? And if they said they were going to show up, would actually show up. There are many people that I could have reached out to, but I but but not that I knew if they said yes would 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 show up. And so I really I really appreciate your uh, your willingness to to do this, take time away from your very important PSA training to talk with me about food safety, to talk with me about underwear and shoes and Legionella and, and, uh, popular culture. So that's, that's uh, very much appreciated. My pleasure. And, uh, I will throw myself under the bus by being very suspicious when you asked me why you wanted me on the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you and Ben have a really good thing going. So I was a bit suspicious of why you were going to cheat on him. Um, Oh no! Just to keep the keep the the, the listeners happy, I, it's all we all, everything we do we do for the listeners, Michelle. So why aren't you going to report a podcast when you're in Dubai? I would think that would be like the perfect sort of podcast on the road type event. It would, except um, we didn't think of it, and and Bobby um, didn't offer. And I don't. I think Ben and I are both going to be there, but we're on separate panels, and there's no provision to record. So we've we've done this before. We had we've had one successful on the road podcast, and I, we've got another one coming up. Um, uh, but it re- it re- does require the host to kind of be cognizant of what we need to do and to be able to make that happen. And the way the way the Dubai conference worked, I mean, Bobby's sort of got all of us as independent entities um, coming to do various things, and so I'm not even sure that we're on the same on the same panel. Uh, nor would it necessarily be. I mean, the 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 conference we did in Minnesota was great because we had some real um, friends of the podcast that were in the in the audience and were part of the organizing committee, and then enough other people that were like, okay, yeah, I can understand like why you'd want to do this thing. I think I don't know if it would go over too well in Dubai if we were to try to do it, but it just it just wasn't in the in the organization and logistics. So I did not mean live. I meant oh. like the two of you could oh. just sit in a room and talk to each other. Oh well, see now it turns out um, if you've ever listened to any of our episodes that we recorded. Um, at IAFP, <clears throat> turns out that is actually it's a lot easier um, for a variety of reasons to do a podcast um, um, remotely, like we're doing right now, versus sitting in the room together. 
Uh, number one, it would involve both of us bringing our microphones. It would involve us having a quiet room. It would involve Ben bringing some extra hardware um, to hook up the microphones. And it would probably involve, if past experience is any indication, it would probably involve between 30 and 45 minutes of technical fidgeting to try to figure out how to make it actually work. So it's really, um, for two guys that are pretty good at food safety, neither one of us is like super good at technology and, and the technology for recording, uh, live face to face, if you don't do it regularly is significantly different than, um, recording remotely via Skype. So you could sit in opposite hotel rooms. We could, we could, we could sit in different hotel rooms and call each other on Skype. That is also a possibility. Yes, that, but that, I, that could have worked. You know, I understand that Mike Batts had some trouble with that before <laughs> where you had to sit on, on the, the router. router. Very so, good. Yeah. Uh, deep, uh, deep catalog there. Hey, I got a bell. Well, uh, well, so I, I, of course, have linked to episode 11, which I, I think is one of the, we, I've referred to this, this often. Uh, so episode, uh, episode 11 has, um, if I can find it here, as uh, so one of the best titles I think we've ever had on a podcast, which is entitled "Somewhere on I ninety five, but we but we will also link to uh, Bats's episode. Um, oh, and that that episode actually that you were on, Ben and I were both on that episode, and we were still trying to figure out I think how to do like a three way calling, and it ended up being a huge mess to edit. So it's way easier to have you as a guest um, when when people are not constantly joining and dropping off the call. So. Yeah, I think I tried to use video on that as well to like look at you guys, and that <laughs> complicated it. Also, oh, that would that would uh, that would uh, significantly uh, affect the bandwidth. So, yeah, so yeah, so we'll link to episode sixty-five, uh, which is also a great a great title. All my <laughs> all my ports are engaged <laughs> uh, with Mike Bats. Oh, Mike Bats. Uh, I, don't think, I, you know, I don't think he's allowed to talk to us on the podcast anymore because he works for the feds now. I think that's probably too true. He might need like a code name like Dr. Freeze or Deep South or yeah. what did what did you decide on Big Little Red Bear? Did that make uh, it a li- little little uh, little little red bear, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. He might he might need a code name. Yeah, I, I, I agree. He, he would need a code name. So Anyway, thank you. Thank you again, Michelle. Um, you know, at this point, uh, we usually talk about when we're going to record again, but, uh, but, but we probably, sh- uh, we should, I should probably do my next uh, recording with Ben, but, um, I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I don't know. I don't know when I'm going to see you again. Um, probably not till IAFP. That seems like a long time. I know I'll, I'll see you on the internet. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll see, you, I'll see you on text message probably in about 10 minutes when I freak <laughs> out and call to ask you, how did that go? Was that okay? Oh, my God. But in person, no, it might be. Um, I don't know when it'll be. You uh, you don't? Well, you might have to be at a meeting that happens the last week in February. You don't huh. know about it yet. Uh, okay. All right. Well, I'll keep my calendar clear. <laughs> keep, keep, keep your calendar clear. Someday you might get a call about a... FDA water summit. Oh, excellent. Ag water. And I feel like since you've got a project doing a meta analysis of water, you might want to maybe be there. Well, that would be, that would be awesome. I, uh, I, I, I always like, uh, I always like to, to be part of, of water summits for meta analyses <laughs> that I'm not doing. I thought you were doing a meta analysis. Are you not? Uh, for what? For water, for ag water, for mm. CPS. Oh, 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 oh yeah. Um, 
No, no, I am no. doing I'm doing a literature meta analysis, um, but it's not just on water. It's on everything related to uh, related to produce safety. So, yeah. OK, Yep. cool. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then we will not talk about when we uh, will record again and we won't talk about when I'll see you again because it might be in July. Um, it seems a long time away. It does, but I see you. I see you every day on the internet. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Because all my best friends are on the internet. Oh dear. Well, thanks again, Michelle. I really appreciate you being on the podcast, and I appreciate you uh, breaking your rule about like not uh, not talking for just an hour, so we could cover um, popular culture stuff and uh, important food safety stuff, like uh, like uh, Legionnaires' disease at uh, Disneyland. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, and I hope that. Um you invite me back uh, sooner than 100 episodes into the future. We'll definitely have to have you back sooner than 100 episodes. That's way too long uh, to, to, to go without uh, having you on the podcast. All right. Thanks, Don. Okay, Michelle. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks.